This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today we have Josh Simon. Josh is the CEO and founder of Simon CRE. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me. Josh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do and all that good stuff? Yeah, so I've been in real estate now 16 years. How long have you been in the real estate business? About that, about 17 years, so. Yeah, so, hey, we both kind of started at the same time. Now we're in our second cycle. Um, I uh, started when I was in college as an intern, and uh, six years later, um, 10 years ago this August, started my own company, Simon CRE. We've developed 180, I think it's two projects in those 10 years, everything from single tenant net lease to small multi-tenant, redeveloping big box. Um, we've done some medical projects. We're doing a couple RV and boat storage deals. Um, so we've ran the gamut. We've grown from um, just myself uh, as the first employee all the way up to we have 40 people now. Um, we have a technology spinoff that we've you know invented some you know technology that helps run our business. And so it's been a it's been a really fun ride the last 10 years. Wow. That is a fun ride. 182 projects. You went from just you to 40 people. That's some significant growth, man. And you've developed 182 projects. Do you hold these projects? No. So most of we're typically a network kind of a merchant developer, so we're a net seller. Um, I when I started the company, I had 50 grand in my name. Um, we've grown that the company with no equity partners. We've partnered on a few deals here and there, but for the majority, we've had no partners. And because of that, you know, you have to build up, a, you know, you don't build a, the Sears Tower without having a big foundation. And so we've had to build, build that foundation. And so by, do, by selling, um, we've been able to build infrastructure. And then now we pretty much do all of our own equity in a lot of our deals. That's amazing bootstrapping it, man. That's what the tech guys do, except you didn't get VC money. You, uh, you bootstrapped it yourself. And you flipped a lot of these 182 projects in order to take on cash and continue to grow the business. How much real estate are you sitting on that you own today? I think we own about 45 different projects in different stages. Um, we'll develop about 40 projects this year um, in probably eight or nine states. Um, everything from Dollar Generals to on the West Coast, O'Reilly's, Starbucks, um, you know, from the single tenant side, 7-Elevens. Um, and so we um, have 
you know, found, you know, timing's everything. And we found that like 10 years ago, the triple net market, what really wasn't what it is today. And what we've seen is like generational change, very macro level of where we've seen all these um, baby boomers selling their multi-tenant, their two and four unit places, sometimes even bigger, um, and wanting to go to a coupon clipper. And Dollar General and O'Reilly has, you know, typically in some of those other tenants that are in that, you know, one and a half to three or four million dollar price point have become super popular. And even today, in the midst of this pandemic, we have seen great demand on the Dollar General products. We've seen, you know, the, the big buzzword for years in this business was experiential. That word today is essential. And so you've seen just how important are our essential retailers. And if you look at what's trading in the market, because what's something worth? Yeah. Somebody else will pay. And right. right? So now we've seen like a huge demand for drive-throughs and for essential retailers that have been open through this uh, pandemic. Yeah, that's, that's great perspective. I think the 1031 markets helped that a lot as well, right? That has grown over the years and the 1031 market, I'm sure has helped your business, right? Yeah, 1031 is a huge part of it. And obviously, every time, you know, there's the potential for, you know, uh, new elected officials, that always is a concern um, that we have. Um, 1031s are, are, are huge. And even now, you know, even with reduced demand, like less people are being able to sell. So the 1031 pipeline is going to slow. But you see the opposite effect where supply is not going to be created as much. And so we feel like there's always this nice balance um, for the 1031 product. The word merchant developer, it's a word that you used to hear all the time when you and I first started in the business. You don't hear that word as much anymore. And, um, but, you know, when you got started and you only had $50,000, was it the dirt or the tenants that drove the bus that got you started? I think there's always people that are interested in that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, look, if you have a great piece of dirt, right? Location, location, location is what we're always taught. But I think the most important thing in our business is relationships and having the access and knowing the tenants and where they want to go, I think is the most important thing. When I started, you know, it took, you know, when you start, it's not like you find your first development deal on day one. You might get lucky. Um, it took almost 12 months, I think about 10 months for my first couple deals to finally get closed. But just because you close doesn't mean you've made really any money unless, you, you know, it might take a small development fee. Um, but really, you make money when you sell. Um, and so for that first year, I was doing anything to make money. I was um, helping out a cricket wireless franchisee in Phoenix and, you know, doing 1200 square foot you know, $10 a foot leases and, um, you know, just trying to make ends meet however I could that initial time. But what I, I realized is it's all the relationships, the relationships with the brokers, the tenants, the, you know, the, the you know, market movers in your market. Most people have a break at some point. They get like a, the, people call it the big break. Did you get a, like a big break at some point that like got you like over the hump? Was there a deal, a package of deals that kind of got you to the point where like you weren't having to make cricket deals to pay the rent? Yeah, I would say um, for us, there was a couple. So was one a, is- Was it a relationship, a deal? Yeah, so 
I would say like, yeah, so one is getting enough help. Um, if you want to be successful, you can't do it on your own. Right. And so I think when I, you know, we hired our first, you know, couple employees, um, that was a break in itself because it really freed me up to focus on bigger picture things. Um, you know, I didn't need to go down and, you know, mail checks, write checks, do all those things. I could focus on the bigger picture and finding new deals. Um, the second thing I would say is, you know, 2010, rough time to start a company. Banks aren't loaning, and if they are, or excuse me, lending, and if they are lending, they're let, lending to their very best customers. And so I step into the picture, and it's very hard. My first, you know, deal was a hard money loan deal. You know, I think it was like 13% interest on the whole thing. Oh, um, and so what I was able to figure out is, and back then this wasn't as popular, and now you've seen a lot of these um, triple net, you know, or a single tenant net lease kind of funds that offer the preferred equity, which is your equity investment. So let's say you need a $2 million loan, the bank will give you a million six, you need that $400,000. And typically in the past, that 400 grand, you would go raise it with a high net worth, maybe country club money, and you would have to give them a, a piece of the upside. Well, we kind of created a mechanism where we would pay, um, you know, I think it was low double digits to start with and maybe a point, but we would pay that for the, uh, for the equity and no upside. And so now the deals became vastly more profitable. Um, and you've really seen a whole market, like all of these groups will basically fund 100% of cost on credit single tenant net lease deals um, up till maybe the pre-pandemic. I haven't checked in to see if they're still doing those deals. So that what I would say is our big, was a was a big break putting that together. And are you a an equity source for the for other developers today in that world? You know, we um, traditionally we haven't been, but we've done multiple deals where guys have teed up those deals, and we've come in with the you know balance sheet to get a bigger loan. Um, with some of the equity, being able to raise the equity because of our track record. Um, you know, I'm kind of a control freak. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I like to be in a spot of control. And like, we've built a full infrastructure. We have, you know, we don't build our own stuff. We have a construction management, development, marketing, you know, finance. We have a machine where it really makes sense for like, Maybe a broker has a, a deal they want to put together, but they don't know the first thing to do and they're looking to partner up. We bring all the you know, infrastructure and horsepower to see a successful project come to fruition. And for the listeners out there, and you talked about those, those funds that were raised, call it pre-pandemic, uh, for the triple net lease uh, properties, are these private funds? Are they local banks? Give the listeners some context of who these groups are that finance something at 100% of cost. Yeah, you know, I think some of them are banks with like, you know, kind of a different bucket of capital they use. Um, some of them are private funds, and then they go borrow on it, you know, and then they, you know, but they're going to charge you, let's just say, you know, 9% on your whole project, and they might take yep. like five points on the back where, you know, we've done enough of the projects where for us, if we can get, you know, we're in the fours now on a lot of our construction lending and sometimes even lower. Um, and then our equity, um, we will pay 10%. And so that blended rate is what, five and a half, six, you yep. know, when you look at it on the capital stack. And so for us, it just doesn't make sense. So 
you know, we always are open to hearing offers, but it just, for us, it doesn't make sense. But if I was starting over again, I mean, yeah, that's a huge opportunity for somebody to get started and not have to give up a big piece of the pie to somebody. Yeah, totally. If the upside's there at the end, right? If the upside's there, uh, if cap rates don't move against you is, uh, and so your deals today, typically getting a construction loan to, and, and, you know, financing out of that later. As far as, is it, has it been, what's it been like? No, is that, is that what a typical deal looks like from a structure perspective? You take, you, you know, you, you, you buy the property, then you go get construction financing, you tie it up, you get construction financing, you build it, rent starts coming in, you get out of that and sell it. Yeah, correct. So typically, you know, on the stuff we look to sell, we're in and out in seven to eight months. So it's a pretty quick turn. We look to close and start construction within a week or two of closing. And so we structure all of our loans, usually, you know, 12 month to 18 month construction uh, with a mini perm, just in case anything, you know, should go wrong or the market, it's not a good time to sell. Got it. Uh, it is that how you end up, you know, at any one time holding the amount of assets you hold, even though they're all for sale? Exactly. You know, most of the stuff we um, will start marketing for sale, you know, as soon as slab is poured, because then you get a good idea. You know, I always like to say site work's the most dangerous part of construction. Once you get to the point you poured a slab, more than likely about 90% of your change orders are gone unless you make changes along the way. Um, And so once we have slab, we feel pretty comfortable. We know when we'll be completed. Uh, on the project. And so we'll take those to market at that time. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. And today, you know, you're the CEO of a 40 person, as you called machine. So what, how much of your job is real estate versus running a business? Or what do I want it to be, right? There you go. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm very blessed. We have a great team. Um, we, the people component is huge. Um, uh, I really love our team. Uh, people component's not as much of my favorite. I like to make deals. Um, I like to fix people's problems. And that's what I really enjoy. So a lot of it is like strategy. Um, hey, operations. Um, most entrepreneurs... You know, you have the visionary and the integrator. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sure. And so a lot of guys can't do both. The majority can't. And I struggle with being an, an integrator, but I understand how things should be put together. And so um, I spend more time than I'd like. Um, I think, look, the most valuable thing you can do as a CEO as, or as a deal maker is get in front and get out and, you know, meet, you know, well, right now, no, meet face to face with your clients you know, and be out there and supportive. So why don't you tell everybody uh, the visionary versus the integrator and what the difference is? So visionary is the idea guy. Hey, this is what I'm going to, I can, you know, I'm I'm guessing you're a visionary. Um, Well, I, I, you know, and I I put it a different way on social media the other day, which was, are you the person who likes to execute? Or are you the person who likes to create the plan behind the scenes? And, you know, in, and same with you in your business, when you started, I think early on in your career, except for the 
real crazy visionaries, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, and even so, they're still executing on some. Uh, you you find yourself executing more in order to climb today. You know, I oversee a large you know a large team, four departments in our company, which is you know at any given time sixty or so people. So I'm less doing, and you know I still have a lot of the tenant facing things like you do as well. But I have um, you know it's more strategy and it's more for for me definitely people management, more strategy, working on plans and where are we going next. Uh, there is obviously you know, and through the pandemic, I've been in a lot of deal making and doing and executing. There's no doubt about that. But traditionally, especially in my role, the the more that's not scalable, right? The more I am, you know, out of that, the better I can be at helping move the company to the next phase with the other members of our executive management team. So, yeah. And integration is you either enjoy it or not, right? Yeah. Like one of our big goals this year is to uh, do PMPs, process and procedures for everything, right? So, hey, this is how the things that we need to fix, um, but I'm not the one to type all that up and figure it out because totally. I don't really enjoy that part. So yeah. I think, you know, part of it's just figuring out what you really like to do. Totally. That's definitely, you know, that's, I, I wouldn't call that's my strength either by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and the... So when you say, you know, the, the, the real estate side of it, are you, are you out finding dirt more than you are talking to tenants? What are you doing more? You know, I'd say most of it's talking to tenants, talking to brokers. Um, you know, we are not a group that ties up dirt and goes fishing. <laughs> That's really yeah. never been our, our, we like to execute. And so we like to be able to go to you know, a seller or a broker representing a seller and say, here's our track record. We have a plan here. Um, and so that's usually what we like to do. And we try to get it figured out like, hey, in the first 30 or 60 days, we probably know if we're going to close because we either have some tenant approvals or um, maybe there's been a bunch of tenant interest when it's brought to us. And so um, got it. Know, I like doing that a lot more than, you know, trying to figure out. Um, hey, who could be great for this big site? And sometimes we pay more because of that, because there is that teed up interest. But we're a volume shop. We're meant to do volumes. Last year, we did 65 escrows, which is a ton for one company, um, especially when you're trading on your own account. Yeah, definitely when you're trading on your own account, that's a lot. What is the strategy today? You know, pre-pandemic, what was the strategy? You obviously had a P&P goal, but what was like the real estate business growth strategy at your volume shop, how do you, you know, get to more deals? Was it, was it new markets? Was it something to do with sellers? Was it more tenants? Was it any of that? Am I, you know, totally off? No, no. I mean, it's always, look, you want to grow your tenant base always, right? Because things are ever changing. We've been very blessed to have great tenants. Um, we also don't want to ever take on more, um, more than we can handle. And so, um, the flywheel concepts, you know, which I'm sure a lot of people know that have listened to, you know, some of those business books and everything, but we've got a flywheel that's running really smooth. Um, we can, you know, insert a bigger deal and the team can handle it. And, you know, before the pandemic, we were really thinking, hey, um, do we go out and, you know, do a fund and raise money to go buy centers and take advantage of that? Obviously, the pandemic threw that all 
out the window because you know lenders don't want to lend on multi-tenant retail because the regulators are coming down and so you know the the high net worth folks you know they don't see the value in multi-tenant today um i tend to disagree i think there's going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity if you're in retail um obviously there's you have to kind of divide retail up into a couple buckets one is your mall power center lifestyle um those projects i think were the most affected um, by the pandemic and then you kind of go to your your smaller strips your grocery anchored and then you know you're kind of your freestanding you know uh restaurants with drive-throughs obviously you know full sit down is different and so i think you know there's going to be a lot of opportunity um in the cmbs market with you know reo eventually and then also with lenders i think there'll definitely be opportunity and so kind of where we see pivoting is look we we're a builder that's who we are we develop stuff and so i would say that we'll look for opportunities where there's probably hair on a deal where you know it really takes somebody creative and a problem solver and you know look to buy some of those assets but at the same time we started to diversify more we're looking at other product types we're just finished a two-story medical uh, facility, uh, multi-tenant, 32,000 square feet. We've got three uh, RV and boat storage, which is basically a parking lot with covered parking that are in development. And, you know, we think having the, the ability to know other uses is an important tool as we look to redevelop shopping centers that might be economically obsolete. That's awesome insight. How did you end up having the what I'll call relationships to do the medical or do the RV? Was that broker relationships? Was that tenant relationships? How did you get into new uses? Yeah, so the medical um, one came from a broker that we worked on a retail deal that we were um, unsuccessful very early on in trying to get a rezone, but the broker enjoyed working with us. Um, so much that he, he, hey, I've got this project. There's a few tenants that have been interested. A lot of it's timing. We were just right timing. And we were able to come in and, and, and execute. Um, you know, some of the other product types, I think it's just building your networks. Networks are so important, right? Um, you know, everyone talks about, you know, you are who you surround yourself with. I couldn't agree yeah. with that more. I'd say one of the biggest things for my success is, you know, people are like, who's your mentor? You know, I say, well, I have dozens of them. Um, obviously, I have some mentors that, you know, are different in, in each segment of my life. Um, our, we have in-house counsel, for example. And he and I have worked together since almost I started in the business. We worked at the, my last company together. And then he joined me and we hired him uh, at my current company. And so he's a mentor. Um, and so I think just having those networks and being able to reach out to people um, it's just, it's so important and it gives that opportunity. And then people need to trust that you are going to do what you say you're going to do. And it's amazing to me how hard that concept can be for some people. Yeah. Great points. Sage advice there, Josh. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, I could talk all day about your business and how you've scaled it up. I think it's a fascinating story. And, you know, there's, there's not a, you know, the merchant developer that, you know, of the, the 90s is different today, um, especially that there's a lot less integrated multi-tenant shopping centers being built than there were 
in those days. So the merchant developer is definitely different today. Well, and I you think know, too, the technology side, I just, one point to make is like, our business has been, you know, high tech for a lot of us has been like a spreadsheet. Yeah. And Dropbox. And now there are tools um, that run companies. You know, we've got a tool called deal for CRE that we, that we use that has DocuSign and box integration. And you know, where the pandemic, when people had to go work from home, like it hurt a lot of people. It didn't slow us down at all. Schedules, dates, bids, um, signing documents, amendments, everything is online. And so it made it so easy for us to, to work remote. And, you know, I, I think that's a challenge for a lot of people today is like embracing new technologies and creating new intentions. Um, and this pandemic has brought down those breakdowns, which require you to have new intentions. What, what, uh, what project management software do you use for your development deals? It's called DealForce CRE. DealForce CRE. Okay. Mm -hmm. We use Procore. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, the, uh, construction. Yeah. Uh, the construction. Yeah. You know. The construction one. You mentioned you're a volume shop you're doing 65 deals last year. The deals, how many were you projected to do this year? 40. So that was 65 purchases and sales, total escrow. Purchase sales, sorry, total yeah. escrow. How so about we'll, this year? We'll do 40 and probably 70 escrows this year. Wow. Um, we'll hit over deal 200 this year. And it was a climb. Like the first year we, you know, we did like two deals and then it was four. And then every year it doubled. Um, and then we've stayed at that, you know, 25 to 35 over the last few years um kind of building the infrastructure every time you um double in size you have growing pains yeah um and so we just kind of hit that next you know growth we're, we're like we talked about earlier we need processes and procedures now you know we have a director of human resources now where before i did everything and obviously that's not that's just not possible we we can talk about that offline all day because oh, yeah. i know a, a lot about all that that stuff for sure, man. And the, you know, you mentioned you're a volume play and if you're going to be doing like dollar general deals and deals like that, you have to be a volume play because it's, you, you can miss really easily on one of those one bad, you know, one bad change order in site work. And you have, you have a, a problem on the back end. Uh, and, the, and it, that brings me to a, you know, the, the part of the show that people love, which is the story behind the deal. And you have an interesting story about uh, Vasa Fitness in what, what town? Phoenix, my hometown. So yeah. give us the whole story, man, because from a development perspective, it's always interesting, Josh. Yeah, so we, um, a year ago, we... Um, when I looked at this, it was a burned down Safeway center. Safeway had caught fire, burned down. Um, part of, you know, the total center was Safeway. Let's just call it, I think it's 100, it was 150 or 160,000 feet. Um, Safeway burned down and elected not to rebuild. So the um, owner, it's a leasehold, was owned by a special servicer. And there was a ground lease. And the ground lease, part of the actual rent on the ground lease was a percentage of rents derived from the, from the leasehold. And when Safeway left, what happened to the rest of the center? Everyone left. Everyone left. So, right. And so it became pretty bad. It was down, you know, I mean, occupancy, I think was 
you know, sub 20, 15 even. And so occupancy, we came in and um, the, the asset was getting ready to be marketed for sale. Um, the leasehold was. But the problem with the leasehold is who wants a leasehold unless you're in Manhattan, you know, usually you don't want a leasehold. Unless... So why don't you tell everybody what that is, Josh? So a leasehold is you don't own the land, you hold the lease. And so basically you have the right to that land by paying a lease payment, similar to just being a tenant, except you're, the land is, you know, you have all the land. And then, and then, and then you're able to, to, to rent out buildings on the land. Yeah. And what's great for somebody that owns the fee simple dirt underneath and is collecting the rent is at, at some point that lease runs out a lot of, um, these leases go for what, 99 years, 99 50 years. years. Yeah. And so what's great is eventually you get, if you get all that back and you own those buildings at the end of the lease, should you not extend. So the guy that owned, that owned the land underneath, it was a farm back in like the seventies, you know, and this is in central Phoenix, right off of, you know, uh, right in the middle of town basically. And um, they owned it. They did this, you know, ground lease to the, and then somebody built a shopping center. Fast forward, now you have, who wants to have, make a leasehold payment when you have a vacant shopping center? And so you had to convince a special servicer to give you enough time, which, you know, they want you to close right away. Um, and the special servicer had, you know, they were getting their insurance proceeds only if they rebuild that building, which they don't have a tenant for, or if they sell it. So they needed to transact. And then the fee simple owner, um, just an older gentleman, he also wanted to transact. And then the, so we knew about this, but then we knew there was a Vasa Fitness deal. Vasa Fitness is a fantastic operator. Um, they have clubs in um, Utah, Colorado, Arizona. They're opening up in the Midwest. And so there's 60,000 square foot gym, value oriented, um, really great facility. They had interest in the site and we knew that they were going to be that they had interest in the site and so we were able to and this is the juggling act get the leasehold get the, the special servicers piece under contract the fee simple and we were able to put to get a vasa fitness deal completed during our due diligence which was pretty short which is pretty amazing and then on top of that though because we didn't want to bring in any equity partners to take this whole project down, which you think about it, the development is, you know, 15 to $20 million when it's all said and done, we wanted to take off some risk. And so we did a um, simultaneous closing where we sold off a legal description of the Vasa fitness um, to a REIT. Um, and so we were able to, to reduce our risk and get much lower um, loan on the rest of it. And it also, gave us, you know, implied equity because when we do the appraisal and the way all the pieces worked out. So it's been a, it's been a fun project. We're actually um, selling a good chunk of the shopping center, I think next week or the week after um, to a school. And so it's pretty exciting to see how that's come all around. A school? Yeah, a charter school. So they, uh, is it going to be a freestanding charter school that's going to be there? Yeah, so the part of the shopping center is like a 30,000 square foot plus or minus wing that is fully vacant. And so they're going to um, remodel it and open up uh, next fall in that. And then we've signed a temporary lease. We actually have a former 
12,000 square foot school on the other side of the center we're not selling. So they're able to utilize that for the next year until they're able to move into their new facility. Wow. There's a lot there. So there's a lot. That's amazing story though. And so you still own it today. You still own pieces of it today. Correct. And uh, so backing up for a second to the beginning. So you mentioned the special servicer owned the leasehold. So obviously they foreclosed on somebody. Correct. So there was an owner who had the leasehold. He had, he put in Safeway or whomever it was. He got foreclosed on. Then this burns down and now safe. And now uh, the special servicers in a pickle and the owner of the land's at risk of not getting payments because there's no, there's no tenants in the center and you go in and you make these deals. And then, with the special servicer, Vasa, and the owner, the, the, the farmer who owns the land. You then um, try to de-risk yourself. And so you have this large shopping center and typically you're buying things smaller and building smaller like pieces of land for Dollar General. So this is bigger deal than you typically might buy and redevelop, but you had a tenant in hand in Vasa Fitness. And you end up, uh, parceling off pieces of the center getting new legal descriptions is that right yeah so the whole center was just one 15 acre piece two out parcels different lots and so we had to do a plat um, but luckily in arizona you can sell a piece of property on a legal description so Amazing. we were able to simultaneously close on a legal and sell the um vasa um piece and you know like look could we have um obviously today is a little different but you know, excluding the pandemic and what it might do to cap rates on certain tenants, like um, we could have probably sold it from 25, 50 basis points better than what we did. However, you know, we felt like, hey, de-risking was more important and um, nobody ever went broke making a profit. There you go. Good point. I love that. Did (laughs) on the, you said a REIT bought the VASA you know, educate me on Vasa. What kind of cap rates do Vasa Fitnesses trade at? You know, I haven't looked at what the open market is now. Um, yeah. But like pre-pandemic, I think they were in like in the low sevens. And, and it, our cap rate was, it was north of that um, by a decent amount. But we felt comfortable because we're like, hey, this will de-risk us um, from that standpoint. And look, we don't want to put that guarantee out on this project right now. And we were able to reduce our exposure significantly. And you were, and there was still, was there still a spread to what you could build to and the cap rate you sold it at? You said there was yeah. a small profit. Yeah, essentially, yeah. There was a, it's really what we did is we kind of, the profit really was in the sense of the rest of the center, our basis yeah. was lower. Understood. So we were able to get better financing and you know all those things came together, so. Awesome. Now you have to retenant and redevelop the rest of the center. Is the VASA fitness freestanding? You said it's a legal description. Yeah, it's freestanding. So the other thing we had to do is there was a shops building that was attached. And the issue you'll find out in a lot of cities is if you try to parcel something, what the issue you have is setbacks and lot lines and fire rating. And so we had to knock down about, I think it's six or 8,000 feet of shops to make sure um, that there was enough distance for um, the rest of the property so we could get a legal parcel uh, approved. Awesome. I love this. My, my uh, 
director of marketing said one time said, you know, sometimes you might go into a little too much inside baseball, but for me, I, I nerd out on deals like this. So 100%. Um, I'm yeah. loving it. Uh, the, and so the Vasa, that's a true triple net lease. Yeah. True triple net lease. Got it. Uh, and you sold that, but are you still building it or did the, the REIT take over? So the way that deal was structured is we have a completion guarantee. So we have to kind of see, make sure it is fully completed and turned over to the tenant and built for spec. And so it's under construction right now. I think it took a while to get permits, but uh, we're under construction now and expect to be done at you know the end of the year. And so is completion guarantee in this deal include rent starting? Uh, I No, it's just, you got to build it. Get the CFO. Got it. Awesome. That's yeah. great. That's really de-risking because you control everything. Yeah. And, you know, we had specific clause um, that we could take over if there was any issue where the tenant, you know, like, let's say they weren't doing what they were supposed to. You know, I think so much of it goes back to my OCD-ness of control. And making sure you put in, I mean, think about the stuff you were doing a year ago and like how, how it would have uh, changed the way you made deals today, yeah. right? Um, look at every lease. I don't know what LOIs are negotiating for new deals right now that don't include some kind of pandemic language where there's a rent payback or, you know, what have you. Like pretty much everything, the world has been turned upside down. And I think, you know, nobody could have thought of this, but, you know, you can, you can do a good job of, of, thinking about hey if this did happen how what can i do to control my desk you know my destiny so for everyone out there vasa fitness is going to end up in this center in phoenix or freestanding in phoenix in q1 of uh 2021 and it all started from a guy getting foreclosed on unfortunately a special serve a fire happening a special servicer now needing to get out and a farmer needing to get out. And then Simon CRE came in and brought in Vasa Fitness. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Make awesome. it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. The, that's, it's really good. And, and the REIT that bought it, is it one of the triple net lease REITs out there in the world? One of the public REITs that owns yeah. triple net lease? Yeah. Correct. <laughs> For those who don't know, there are, real estate investment trusts that focus on just buying uh, triple net lease uh, properties. And they typically try to buy them at a few basis points above what they might trade in the marketplace. So that was probably a good opportunity for them. You were able to de-risk them yourself and they were able to buy at a cap rate that they might like to buy at. So probably worked for everyone. Kudos. Um, if I get to Phoenix in 2021, I'm going to go check out that, uh, that deal for sure. That's really cool. Uh, oh, thanks for we can do some bench. There you go. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, cool story, man. The last part of our show is called retail wisdom. And I ask everyone three questions. Tell me when you're ready. Let's do it. Your best piece of commercial real estate advice for everyone out there. I said it earlier, do what you say you're going to do. Simple as that. Simple. Great advice, though. All right, next one, number two. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead? 
So I'm a little like kind of just bearish on this, you know, pessimistic. Like if they're dead, they're dead. There's a reason why they should be dead. The one I'll say that I miss is Marshall Fields um, that was absorbed into, you know, Macy's or whatever. And I just missed um, from Chicago. I'm a Chicago boy. And so I missed, uh, we used to go there growing up. Awesome. You're the first guest to say Marshall Fields. (laughs) Probably the last. (laughs) (laughs) Last question. So. I am, and I said this on a previous show, I am getting ready. My wife and I purchased a family portrait photo session from a, for a, photog- from a photographer for my mother-in-law for Mother's Day in May. And it's going to be on the beach. And my wife has to make sure I, I look presentable. And so she's picked out some beach clothes. The shirt that I will be wearing is a Tommy Bahama Costa Capri short sleeve linen shirt in blue. What does that retail for on Tommy Bahama's website, Josh? $139.99. Wow, you're pretty close, but not on it. $115, but thank you for playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, man, it's been, uh, it's been awesome. I really appreciate the time. This was great. Awesome yeah. story. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Good seeing you. And you too. Let me know if you ever need anything, bud. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.